The Whisperer in Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft Chapter 5 Then, apparently crossing my incoherent note and reaching me Saturday afternoon, September 8th, came that curiously different and calming letter neatly typed on a new machine. That strange letter of reassurance and invitation which must have marked so prodigious a transition in the whole nightmare drama of the Lonely Hills. Again, I will quote from memory, seeking for special reasons to preserve as much of the flavour of the style as I can. It was postmarked Bellows Falls, and the signature as well as the body of the letter was typed, as is frequent with beginners in typing. The text, though, was marvellously accurate for a Tyro's work, and I concluded that Akeley must have used a machine at some previous period, perhaps in college. To say that the letter relieved me would be only fair, yet beneath my relief lay a substratum of uneasiness. If Akeley had been sane in his terror, was he now sane in his deliverance? And the sort of improved rapport mentioned. What was it? The entire thing implied such a diametrical reversal of Akeley's previous attitude. But here is the substance of the text, carefully transcribed from a memory in which I take some pride. Townshend, Vermont. Thursday, September 6, 1928. My dear Wilmarth, it gives me great pleasure to be able to set you at rest regarding all the silly things I've been writing you. I say silly, although by that I mean my frightened attitude rather than my descriptions of certain phenomena. Those phenomena are real and important enough. My mistake had been in establishing an anomalous attitude toward them. I think I mentioned that my strange visitors were beginning to communicate with me and to attempt such communication. Last night, this exchange of speech became actual. In response to certain signals I admitted to the house, a messenger from those outside, a fellow human, let me hasten to say. He told me much that neither you nor I had even begun to guess, and showed clearly how totally we had misjudged and misinterpreted the purpose of the Outer Ones in maintaining their secret colony on this planet. It seems that the evil legends about what they have offered to men, and what they wish in connection with the Earth, are wholly the result of an ignorant misconception of allegorical speech, speech of course moulded by cultural backgrounds and thought habits vastly different from anything we dream of. My own conjectures I freely own, shot as widely past the mark as any of the guesses of illiterate farmers and savage natives. What I had thought morbid and shameful and ignominious is in reality awesome and mind-expanding and even glorious. My previous estimate being merely a phase of man's eternal tendency to hate and fear and shrink from the utterly different. Now I regret the harm I have inflicted upon these alien and incredible beings in the course of our nightly skirmishes. If only I had consented to talk peacefully and reasonably with them in the first place. But they bear me no grudge, their emotions being organised very differently from ours. It is their misfortune to have had as their human agents in Vermont some very inferior specimens the late Walter Brown, for example. He prejudiced me vastly against them. Actually, they have never knowingly harmed men, but have often been cruelly wronged and spied upon by our species. There is a whole secret cult of evil men. A man of your mystical erudition will understand me when I link them with Haster and the Yellow Sign. Devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. It is against these aggressors, not against normal humanity, that the drastic precautions of the Outer Ones are directed. Incidentally, I learned that many of our lost letters were stolen not by the Outer Ones, but by the emissaries of this malign cult. All that the Outer Ones wish of man is peace and non-molestation, and an increasing intellectual rapport. 
This latter is absolutely necessary now that our inventions and devices are expanding our knowledge and motions, and making it more and more impossible for the Outer One's necessary outposts to exist secretly on this planet. The alien beings desire to know mankind more fully, and to have a few of mankind's philosophic and scientific leaders know more about them. With such an exchange of knowledge all perils will pass, and a satisfactory modus vivendi be established. The very idea of any attempt to enslave or degrade mankind is ridiculous. As a beginning of this improved rapport, the Outer Ones have naturally chosen me, whose knowledge of them is already so considerable as their primary interpreter on Earth. Much was told me last night, facts of the most stupendous and vista-opening nature, and more will be subsequently communicated to me both orally and in writing. I shall not be called upon to make any trip outside just yet, though I shall probably wish to do so later on, employing special means and transcending everything which we have hitherto been accustomed to regard as human experience. My house will be besieged no longer. Everything has reverted to normal, and the dogs will have no further occupation. In place of terror, I have been given a rich boon of knowledge and intellectual adventure, which few other mortals have ever shared. The outer beings are perhaps the most marvellous organic things in, or beyond all space and time, members of a cosmos-wide race of which all other life forms are merely degenerate variants. They are more vegetable than animal, if these terms can be applied to the sort of matter composing them, and have a somewhat fungoid structure, though the presence of a chlorophyll-like substance and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true cormophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space, with electrons having a wholly different vibration rate. That is why the beings cannot be photographed on the ordinary camera films and plates of our known universe, even though our eyes can see them. With proper knowledge, however, any good chemist could make a photographic emulsion which would record their images. The genus is unique in its ability to traverse the heatless and airless interstellar void in full corporeal form, and some of its variants cannot do this without mechanical aid or curious surgical transpositions. Only a few species have the ether-resisting wings characteristic of the Vermont variety. Those inhabiting certain remote peaks in the Old World were brought in other ways. Their external resemblance to animal life, and to the sort of structure we understand as material, is a matter of parallel evolution rather than of close kinship. Their brain capacity exceeds that of any other surviving life form, although the winged types of our hill country are by no means the most highly developed. Telepathy is their usual means of discourse, though they have rudimentary vocal organs which, after a slight operation for surgery, is an incredibly expert and everyday thing among them, can roughly duplicate the speech of such types of organism as still use speech. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune, and the ninth in distance from the Sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as Yugoth in certain ancient and forbidden writings, and it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yugoth when the Outer Ones wish them to do so, but Yugoth, of course, is only the stepping stone. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. 
and as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to not more than fifty other men since the human race has existed. You will probably call this raving at first Wilmarth, but in time you will appreciate the titanic opportunity I have stumbled upon. I want you to share as much of it as is possible, and to that end must tell you thousands of things that won't go on paper. In the past I have warned you not to come to see me. Now that all is safe, I take pleasure in rescinding that warning and inviting you. Can't you make a trip up here before your college term opens? It would be marvellously delightful if you could. Bring along the phonograph record and all my letters to you as consultative data. We shall need them in piecing together the whole tremendous story. You might bring the Kodak prints too, since I seem to have mislaid the negatives and my own prints in all this recent excitement. But what a wealth of facts I have to add to all this groping and tentative material, and what a stupendous device I have to supplement my additions. Don't hesitate, I am free from espionage now, and you will not meet anything unnatural or disturbing. Just come along and let my car meet you at the Brattleboro station, prepare to stay as long as you can and expect many an evening of discussion of things beyond all human conjecture. Don't tell anyone about it, of course, for this matter must not get to the promiscuous public. The train service to Brattleboro is not bad. You can get a timetable in Boston. Take the B&M to Greenfield, and then change for the brief remainder of the way. I suggest you're taking the convenient 4.10pm standard from Boston. This gets into Greenfield at 7.35, and at 9.19 a train leaves there which reaches Brattleboro at 10.01. That is weekdays. Let me know the date, and I'll have my car on hand at the station. Pardon this typed letter, but my handwriting has grown shaky of late, as you know, and I don't feel equal to long stretches of script. I got this new corona in Brattleboro yesterday. It seems to work very well. Awaiting word, and hoping to see you shortly with the phonograph record and all my letters and the Kodak Prince, I am yours in anticipation. Henry W. Akeley, to Albert N. Wilmarth, Esquire, Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts. The complexity of my emotions upon reading, rereading, and pondering over this strange and unlooked-for letter is past adequate description. I have said that I was at once relieved and made uneasy, but this expresses only crudely the overtones of diverse and largely subconscious feelings which comprised both the relief and the uneasiness. To begin with, the thing was so antipodally at variance with the whole chain of horrors preceding it, the change of mood from stark terror to cool complacency, and even exultation was so unheralded, lightning-like, and complete, I could scarcely believe that a single day could so alter the psychological perspective of one who had written that final frenzied bulletin of Wednesday, no matter what relieving disclosures that day might have brought. At certain moments a sense of conflicting unrealities made me wonder whether this whole distantly reported drama of fantastic forces were not a kind of half-illusory dream created largely within my own mind. Then I thought of the phonograph record and gave way to still greater bewilderment. The letter seemed so unlike anything which could have been expected. As I analysed my impression, I saw that it consisted of two distinct phases. First, granting that Akeley had been sane before and was still sane the indicated change in the situation itself was so swift and unthinkable. And secondly, the change in Akeley's own manner, attitude and language was so vastly beyond the normal or the predictable. The man's whole personality seemed to have undergone an insidious mutation, 
a mutation so deep that one could scarcely reconcile his two aspects with the supposition that both represented equal sanity. Word choice, spelling, all was subtly different, and with my academic sensitiveness to prose style, I could trace profound divergences in his commonest reactions and rhythm responses. Certainly, the emotional cataclysm or revelation which could produce so radical an overturn must be an extreme one indeed. Yet in another way the letter seemed quite characteristic of Akeley. The same old passion for infinity, the same old scholarly inquisitiveness. I could not a moment, or more than a moment, credit the idea of spuriousness or malign substitution. Did not the invitation, the willingness to have me test the truth of the letter in person, prove its genuineness? I did not retire Saturday night, but sat up thinking of the shadows and marvels behind the letter I had received. My mind, aching from the quick succession of monstrous conceptions it had been forced to confront during the last four months, worked upon this startling new material in a cycle of doubt and acceptance which repeated most of the steps experienced in facing the earlier wonders. Till long before dawn a burning interest and curiosity had begun to replace the original storm of perplexity and uneasiness. Mad or sane, metamorphosed or merely relieved, the chances were that Akeley had actually encountered some stupendous change of perspective in his hazardous research, some change at once diminishing his danger, real or fancied, and opening dizzy new vistas of cosmic and superhuman knowledge. My own zeal for the unknown flared up to meet his, and I felt myself touched by the contagion of the morbid barrier breaking. To shake off the maddening and wearying limitations of time and space and natural law, to be linked with the vast outside, to come close to the nighted and abysmal secrets of the infinite and the ultimate, surely such a thing was worth the risk of one's life, soul and sanity. And Akeley had said there was no longer any peril. He had invited me to visit him instead of warning me away as before. I tingled at the thought of what he might now have to tell me. There was an almost paralysing fascination in the thought of sitting in that lonely and lately beleaguered farmhouse with a man who had talked with actual emissaries from outer space. Sitting there with the terrible record and the pile of letters in which Akeley had summarised his earlier conclusions. So late Sunday morning, I telegraphed Akeley that I would meet him in Brattleboro on the following Wednesday, September 12th, if that date were convenient for him. In only one respect did I depart from his suggestions, and that concerned the choice of a train. Frankly, I did not feel like arriving in that haunted Vermont region late at night, so instead of accepting the train he chose, I telephoned the station and devised another arrangement. By rising early and taking the 8.07am standard into Boston, I could catch the 9.25 for Greenfield, arriving there at 12.22 noon. This connected exactly with a train reaching Brattleboro at 1.08pm, a much more comfortable hour than 10.01 for meeting Akeley and riding with him into the close-packed, secret-guarding hills. I mentioned this choice in my telegram, and was glad to learn in the reply, which came toward evening, that it had met with my prospective host's endorsement. His wire ran thus. Arrangement satisfactory. We'll meet 108 train Wednesday. Don't forget record and letters and prints. Keep destination quiet. Expect great revelations. Akeley. Receipt of this message in direct response to one sent to Akeley, and necessarily delivered to his house from the Townshend station, either by official messenger, or by a restored telephone service, removed any lingering subconscious doubts I may have had about the authorship of the perplexing letter. My relief was marked indeed, it was greater than I could account for at that time, since all such doubts had been rather deeply buried. 
but I slept soundly and long that night, and was eagerly busy with preparations during the ensuing two days.